we all want something that's real. And we want to actually know that it's real too. That's a big deal. It's not just that we think it's real. We want to actually know that something is real. And there are a lot of things in life that we really care about if they are real or not. Uh, that probably your wife does care if that ring that you bought her uh, is an actual diamond ring or if it's some kind of uh, synthetic cubic zirconium or something that you got married with. Okay, that's probably something people care about. You know, is something, is it genuine wood? Is it genuine leather? But there's some things that are really important too. You want to care that the money that you have is actual money and not counterfeit money. So we live in a world where there's things that are real and that matters. There's things that are fake and sometimes it can be difficult to know which is which. What about information? Is information that you receive, is it true or is it uh, something else? And we live in a world now where it's easier to fake different things. We have AI and uh, deep fakes, different things. In fact, uh, recently with the uh, war between Israel and Hamas, Israel responding to uh, the, the attacks upon them by Hamas, there's been a lot of propaganda. And one of the things that I saw that went viral was a, a picture of a baby that was uh, trapped under rubble. And it went viral on the internet and even some uh, magazines and uh, news outlets you know, pointed to this, basically giving the implication of, you know, look how, how mean and bad Israel is to cause this with this, this infant that is trapped you know, under this rubble. And it was later uh, just <laughs> determined that this is a fake picture. This is created by AI. And you look at it, there's indications. AI tends to have these over-exaggerated facial features. If you look really carefully, there's way too many fingers on the baby's one hand. And also they found this used uh, months earlier for some earthquakes that were in, I believe, Turkey, where it was the same picture. Uh, but a lot of people either fell for it or wanted to believe it or wanted to use it. Things that are important to us if they are real. What about your investments? What about if you buy some art? You want to make sure that that's really uh, the actual thing or not. And if it's a, um, just a uh, recreation, you want to at least know that. But if you're paying top dollar for the real thing, you want to know that too. I read about in 2018 that there was an art museum in France uh, that had these displays, uh, a whole exhibit by the artist Antine Terras. And they discovered uh, that over half of the paintings that they had in their museum were actually fake. That one of the curators uh, was looking at one of these uh, pictures, these paintings that they had spent a lot of money on uh, for this grand reopening and noticed like a building in the background and noticed that that building actually was, was built after the artist that supposedly painted this had died. And then in further investigation, they found that uh, 82 out of the 140 works that they had were not really by this, by this artist. Of course, there's some things that we're glad that they're not real. Uh, being real or not does matter. I have a little log on my phone that I write down uh, sometimes when my kids say things that I think are pretty amusing. And one that I was looking at that I wrote down, this is my son, Luke Archer, and I wrote down age five. Uh, but he was praying with us at a meal, and this was his prayer. I thought this was fantastic. And he said, thank you that you made us real, but that zombies are not real. <laughs> Amen.
You know, I think we can all say amen to that. <laughs> but there are other things that it would really be really terrible to find out if they were not real. It would really change life. It would change everything. If you found out that God is not actually real. What about Jesus? Is, this, uh, is he actually real or is this just a myth that we, we like? What about salvation? This whole thing that through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, we can be saved from hell. That better be real. We find out that that's not real. And how about just your salvation? One thing to say that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners and he saves people, but what about you? To know and have assurance that your salvation is real, that you are a real Christian, that you are really saved. Is Jesus real? I mean, like, really real. Or I think a lot of people think about Jesus the way that maybe you think about, you know, the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy or certain Christmas legends that people say, well, you know, as long as it's real in your heart, you know, that's fine. Um, but you don't really think it's real, real. Is that the way we think about Jesus Christ? That he is this inspiring legend, and it doesn't matter if he's real, real in history and time and space, as long as he's real to us in our heart. As I'm getting ready for the series, knowing we're going to be spending uh, next few months in First John, you know, I've been spending a lot of time reading it, rereading it, looking at uh, just uh, different commentaries, thinking through things, how to break down you know, the different sermons. And one of the things as I was looking at this, trying to think, what, is, what are some of the main things that John is trying to teach us in this book? And something that just kept hitting me was this theme of what is real that John is really stressing, and we're going to see in this first message, that Jesus is real, that he's an eyewitness, he saw this, and Jesus came and he saves us from, from real sin, and he saves us by his, his real sacrifice on the cross, which is a propitiation uh, for, our, for our sins. It talks about these realities, and also a big theme in First John too is whether our relationship with Christ is real. That for each of us, that we, as we read this, we want to think about this and to find out, are we the real deal, each of us? Or are we going through the motions? Are we pretending? And if that is the case, if you find out that, well, I, I, I've just been going through the motions. I pray that God will work through this so that it can become the real deal for you, that you can really turn and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. But it's also going to tell us what being a real Christian really is all about. It's really believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's going to be backed up by, by love, a big theme in this letter. And it changed life. If someone claims to be a Christian and there's no change in their life, uh, that is not good evidence to back up the claim that they really have been born again. So these are themes that we're going to be looking at. And um, Warren Wearsby, he has a book on First John, and he kind of saw the same thing, and he titled his, his book, Be Real. So that's why I'm calling this series Real Christianity. So I'm not here to say that First Baptist Church, we're the only real Christians. That's not the point here. I'm calling it this to point out that John in this is telling us that Christianity is real. It's, in this letter, he's showing us how we can know that we are real Christians, and how real Christians should act in love and making a break with sin in our lives because we've trusted Jesus Christ as the one that died in our place. 
We wanted to put it in like one sentence. I think the whole, the whole book altogether could say it like this. The Apostle John testifies that there is a real Jesus who provides real forgiveness from real sin and that we can have real assurance of being real Christians through real belief, evidenced by real love and a real changed life. And so as we go through this, we're going to be seeing this and unpacking this. And so I hope that you'll be with us throughout the weeks to come because this is really a great letter. And I hope you read it on your own too because the more that you're in this, letting it simmer, thinking about it, the more God will work through his word to impact your heart and your lives. This is written by John the Apostle. And there's John the Baptist, but this is John the Apostle, one of the 12. And he was tight with Jesus, real close with him. And uh, he's also the one that wrote the Gospel of John. There's also a second and third letter of John. And he also wrote Revelation uh, at the end of your Bible as well, too. And so, uh, yeah, he was Jesus' traveling companion, apostle. He's writing this uh, as an old man. It's probably about 90 A.D. Okay, Jesus was probably crucified about 33. So he's writing this as an old man. He might be the last of the apostles left at this point. Good chance that he is. And he's writing this uh, probably from the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, or at least it was in what is now modern-day Turkey, probably to other churches in that area that probably John knew personally. You can tell as we read this, he has a lot of affection for these believers. But in other sense, it's to believers everywhere and to us as well. So let's read this first section, and we're going to start unpacking it. What does God have to say to us in his word? 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So working our way through this, I think one of the, a helpful thing to do, first of all, is to make sure we realize kind of what we're talking about here because um, there's kind of a lot to unpack and kind of untangle. Uh, in Greek, this is actually all one long sentence. And in it, we see he's talking about the word of life. And what is this? And you might be forgiven if you think, well, the word of life, this is the, the word of God. It's the Bible, it's the scriptures. Uh, but I think when we look at this, we realize that's not exactly what... Uh, John here is talking about. He's talking about uh, something different. And so the first point, just to help us kind of make sense with the rest of this, is that Jesus is the word of life. That we're talking about Jesus Christ here. And we see this when we look at it. Because it says, this is that which was from the beginning. So this is something that goes all the way back, you know, to the beginning. Okay, we're going to see even before the beginning. Uh, but we also see it's not just a message because he says that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. So you put all these things together 
and it becomes apparent that, oh, this is talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about the Son of God here. So that's the subject of this paragraph, is uh, Jesus Christ, the God-man, that John the Apostle is proclaiming to us. So one of the first things we get from this is that Jesus was real, and he was real from the beginning. And as we look at Scripture and realize not just that he had a start at the beginning, uh, but he was real from beginning, from before there was a beginning, before there was time. Because he was with the Father from the beginning, he is uncreated. We can compare what we just read from 1 John with something else that the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel. And the Gospels are the uh, written accounts about you know, Jesus Christ and his whole his life. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the way that John starts the Gospel of John is very similar to what we've just read. You can tell it's by the same author. And there he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we see from those first verses, again, he's talking about the word, and then we can see, okay, it doesn't seem like he's talking about the Bible here. He's talking about uh, some, someone that's personal and someone that is both God but also distinct, at least from God the Father because we realize that uh, what's revealed to us is that God is Trinity, that there's one God. We're not polytheists. We believe in just one God. Okay, so God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, they're not three gods, but we do say they're three persons in the one God. That's mysterious, uh, but that's uh, what we believe that Scripture has revealed to us. And see, the word here, again, it's talking about Jesus Christ. He was with God, God the Father, uh, but he also, he was God. He had the same quality. He had the same character as God, uh, that he was God in his essence, and that he was in the beginning with God, and that through uh, God, that through Jesus Christ, everything was made. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. And then just in case we're unclear still about, yeah, but is this really talking about Jesus? When you keep reading in uh, John, you get to verse 14, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So now it's really clear this is talking about Jesus Christ. So this is the incarnation, when the Son of God that existed as God forever, but he wasn't a human being, when he came down and he took on uh, human nature as well. So now in one person, you have someone that has a full divine nature and a full human nature as well too. And that's what we believe about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he dwelt among us. He lived here on this earth. Uh, literally, that could be translated, he pitched his tent among us. And so when we get back to 1 John, this is what the Apostle John is saying again. He's, he's saying this word, this is who we're talking about, and this is the one that we've seen with our eyes, that we, have, um, that, uh, we were witnessing to you that he really exists. So think about this too. He says he's the word of life. I think, why do you think he calls him the word of life? Okay, we realize this is talking about Jesus Christ, but why call him the word? And why call him here the word of, of life? And um, you think about what words do. 
you know, maybe you're a parent and maybe you have, uh, you know, your, your kids are young, uh, you know, they know how to talk, but maybe your kid comes in, you know, to the bedroom and the kid is crying, okay? And, and <laughs> he wants to get your attention, he's talking about mommy, <laughs> and he's going on and you're, you're looking at the kid, you don't see any blood, okay? So you know, okay, at least it's not that, uh, but there's a lot of, <laughs> and they're hysterical and you're trying to find out what's going on. They're obviously upset, something's going on, but at this point, you don't know, you know, do they have, uh, you know, did brother or sister, you know, uh, you know punch them in the face? Uh, they have something broken? Or is it, you know, their brother or sister told them they don't like macaroni and cheese, and they got all offended, or something ridiculous? You just don't know. And you're trying to figure out, and as a parent, eventually, you say to them, probably, and they're going, you're trying to say, what is it, what is it? And they're not saying, you say, use your words. Yes. And I think that's helpful. And when you think of what word means, in, in Greek, it's the word lagos. And yeah, some of those commentators, they talk about how the, the Greeks and the philosophers, it was a term that you know, they used, and some of them, it was the, uh, this rational force of creation. Uh, but you know what? Let's not overthink things. Okay, uh, scripture uses the term word, and we understand what it means, and words, they reveal things. At the core, that's what words do. They reveal things. They, they communicate things to us. And I think that's why it re- makes a lot of sense that the Bible calls Jesus Christ the, the word of God, uh, because he communicates, he reveals, he tells us what God is like. And Jesus communicates God to us perfectly because he is God himself. And so he is the complete revelation of God. At one point, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't have to, if you see me, you know what I'm like. You can know what the Father's like because we share the same essence. It's not like I'm one way and the Father is a whole different way. Jesus reveals the Trinity. He reveals God to us. That's a message that Scripture uh, has to us. And we think about why is he called the, in here the word of life. And the word here for life is the word zoe. And it is the word that is life and, and Jesus is the word of life because true life, we've seen, is in Jesus. And life is from him. He's the creator of all life. But then especially eternal life comes from him as well. So yeah, he is the one that reveals God to us. This one that pre-existed from the beginning, uh, that was with God. There's one preacher who said, Jesus is the only man who had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother, who had an earthly mother but no earthly father, who was older than his mother and who was as old as his father. So Jesus Christ, before he came down, he existed as the son of God. And he reveals to us exactly what God is like because he is God himself. So Jesus is the word of God. Second point I want to make in this message is that uh, Jesus is real. Okay? That Jesus is, I, I say this because I think this is what John is trying to emphasize to us. That Jesus Christ is actually real. So let's read these first two verses again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So we see that John and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus. I mean, they were with him. And they were with him through his, through his ministry. They saw him. They knew that he was actually a legit human being, too. Uh, there were some false teachers we're going to see in John's time that were claiming that, well, maybe Jesus just, he didn't have a real human body. He just, because God, he wouldn't come down and defile himself with evil. And some were teaching that he didn't really become a human. And Johnny there saying, no, we know he legit became a human. But they also know that he was legit God, that he did things that, that he said and that he demonstrated through his miracles that he was also God. And they saw these with the ultimate thing being his resurrection from the dead. So they were eyewitnesses. I don't know if you've ever been an eyewitness like to a crime, to, uh, have, to give a testimony. I've never had to like in a court situation. I did have to once as a kid there were some other kids on our block that, that got into a fight. And I guess it was bad enough that the, the police ended up coming. And they rounded up all the, the neighborhood kids that saw this. And I, I remember where I was standing on the street with the officer there, and he had his little notebook out. And he was asking me, hey, what did you see? What happened? And I told him what I saw. And then he asked for my information, my name. He wrote that down, made a record of that. Uh, afterwards, uh, there would be sometimes, you know, some of the kids would... Uh, that would get in trouble, would talk about their police records. And I would say, yeah, I have a police record too. Because <laughs> I thought a police officer recorded my name down. That's, I must have a police record. Uh, but I was at least an official witness to what happened. In Sunday school, uh, one of the classes, the one that I'm leading, we're going through a series called Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. And he was a homicide detective who dealt with cold cases and in his books that he's written, he talks about how if you use some of the same techniques that they used to determine if a, like a homicide really happened or not, and the crack even like cold cases, you apply those to uh, the scriptures, to the witnesses that we have here, and you can determine, does this stand up? Does this validate? And there's a lot of cases um, where they are decided on evidence that is strong, but not nearly as strong as what we actually have. Dealing with one case, um, he, writes, uh, he writes this. I'm reading from an excerpt here. It says, so let me get this right. He's talking about a, a trial situation here. So let me get this right. He's talking to a witness. Uh, you're willing to send my client to jail for years, yet you only saw the suspect for a few seconds, late at night, in the dark, and without the benefit of your glasses. The defendant's attorney was now facing the jury. His questions uh, rhetorical. He made his point, and he was now watching the jury to see if it had the impact he intended. Well, I'm not sure what to say, Mr. Strickland stammered hesitantly as he sank into his chair. The prosecutor was an energetic, competent attorney who understood the value of this victim's eyewitness testimony. She waited for the defense attorney to return to his seat and then prepared for her redirect. Mr. Strickland, you said earlier that you were robbed by this man. I want to ask you a question. Given your observations of the robber, point to the moment, giving your observations of the robber prior to the moment when he punched you, 
your observations of the suspect's height, the shape and features of his face, his body type, and the structure of his physique, I want you to rate your certainty about the identity of the suspect. On a scale of 1 to 100, how certain are you that this man sitting here at the defendant's table is the man who robbed you? Mr. Strickland sat up in the chair and leaned forward. He paused just slightly before answering, I am 100% certain that this is the man who robbed me. There is no doubt in my mind. The jury returned a verdict in less than 30 minutes and convicted the defendant, largely on the strength of Mr. Strickland's eyewitness testimony. Yeah, eyewitness testimony goes a long way. And of course, the jury's gonna try to determine was this witness credible? And sometimes they are not, but sometimes they are. Was in a position to really understand this? And this was a case where uh, the defense attorney was trying to say, well, how could you have really seen it? It was just for a few moments and it was kind of dark. Uh, but there was enough here where the man was able to identify this person. I mean, it was really clear in his memory. And all things together brought a quick verdict. Now think of that, now think of what we have when we look at the records in the New Testament from the eyewitnesses that are giving us the records that they are writing down, which are basically to us like sworn depositions that we have from John, from, uh, from Peter, from the other apostles, you know, as well. You know, lots of cases can be closed just on circumstantial evidence without an eyewitness, but when there's a reliable eyewitness, it's so much better. And so what we have here, what John is saying, you notice uh, what he is stressing here. He's saying, I saw Jesus. I saw these things. And this was not just a glimpse from far away. This wasn't, a, I saw him in a distance and it was kind of shadowy. You know, like people that claim they see Bigfoot and it's like, oh, it was a dark night and it was kind of foggy, but I'm sure it was Bigfoot. No, this is a different type of thing. And notice how... Uh, what type of testimony he has, what type of position he was in to observe this. Uh, we see as we look through this, he had multiple senses that he used to witness Jesus, to observe him, to have that evidence. And so we look at this passage again, a highlight here for you, uh, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, touched with our hands. Again, he says, seem it. So again, this isn't just a fleeting glimpse in the dark. And he's saying not only eyewitness testimony, he's earwitness testimony. When you have more than one sense, that's even better. So he heard Jesus, he heard his teachings uh, before his death and resurrection and after his death and resurrection, that he saw these things and they even touched him uh, both before and after, physically um, experiencing, observing him in that way. And notice, too, this is close up, that John and the apostles, you know, again, this wasn't just from a distance. There, it was, this was close up with him. And over years, that it was at least three years where the apostles were traveling with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And that's a lot of time and opportunity up front to witness him and to get to see who he is. This isn't just a few seconds where this happened. And also there are multiple witnesses. This isn't just one person, the Apostle John. This is uh, the rest of the apostles. Uh, scripture tells us there was over one point over 500 witnesses. 
But when we read the New Testament, it's not just one person's writing. There's multiple witnesses telling us this. And the Gospel of Luke, which is a compilation of, you know, interviews with lots and lots of witnesses. Notice in the passage, it says, which we have seen with our eyes. Uh, in verse 1 here, saying this is, again, not just him. He's talking kind of on behalf of the other apostles that have already given, you know, their witness and their testimony um, while they were still alive as well. They witnessed Jesus' miracles, his resurrection. This was real. This was historical. This was time and space, not just, you know, Jesus in my heart. One thing I want to notice before we move on is when we, look, when, I, when we look through this, we can see a few different stages. That one, Jesus, he preexisted from all eternity. He was real from the beginning. And then it says he was manifested. He was revealed. So God did not stay hidden. He exposed himself. He revealed himself to humanity. And yeah, in the Old Testament, he did that as well through different miracles, parting the Red Sea. There's a sense he did that through creation, but really through Jesus Christ, he's revealed. But then it was observed by the apostles and those that were there, okay? And then it was reported to us, proclaimed to us. It uses that word. And so when you and I, we read 1 John, again, we are reading basically a firsthand account of an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, a sworn deposition before God of someone that actually saw this happen. And someone that I would say we can find credible. If we haven't decided ahead of time, well, I know that God doesn't actually exist, so of course this didn't really happen. Well, then you come to this with a presupposition. But if you come to this uh, without that, you would find this to be a credible witness. And also to believe that God works through this to your heart to help you to know that this is the real deal. So John, in this, he's telling us this is the real deal. That's a point that he is stressing. Finally, third point in this message Jesus, the word of God, Jesus is real. And that also, Jesus gives eternal life, fellowship, and joy. There are three things I think we can pull out from the rest of this passage. In two, verse 2, it talked about Jesus Christ being the source of eternal life. John goes on, That which we have seen and heard, again saying this, uh, we proclaim also to you so that Here's the reason why he's doing it. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So Jesus gives eternal life. Hence, the word of life. And we think about eternal life, what it is. It's not just quantity of life. It's not just living forever. Because honestly, you're going to live forever one place or another after you leave this body, but it's either going to be hell or it's going to be heaven. So we talk about eternal life. Uh, it's referring also to a quality of life, that you have a different type of life when you are reconnected with God when you are saved. That instead of being in spiritual death, disconnected from God, you're made alive together with him. Uh, when you are uh, raised from the dead with Jesus, that which our water baptism represents, dying with Christ and being raised to new life with him, so that's something that starts at the moment of salvation. So eternal life isn't something just for later on after you die. It's something that starts here and now, the moment that you trust Jesus Christ alone as, as your Savior, the one that died for you. 
and then it goes on forever into eternity. Also, Jesus gives fellowship. It's talking about that here. Fellowship means like a, a deep sharing, a partnership, a, a communion, having something in common. Because notice it says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then we see the Holy Spirit there too, because he's the bond of all this uh, fellowship as well, even though he's not explicitly mentioned. But this fellowship, this is something that's both vertical and it's horizontal. Okay, so the fellowship is with, with God the Father, God the Son, and, through the, and with the Holy Spirit. So we have that relationship, but we also have a horizontal relationship too. He says, you know, it, fellowship is with us. So it's with John, with other believers. And so the Christian life is about both of these. Yeah, when you're saved, you're reconnected to God and he, you are adopted by him um, as your, your heavenly father and new life and all this, and that's great, but it's not meant to be just this individual thing where it's just you and God and that's it. You're also meant to, to be connected with other believers. And that's why we come to church together to worship together. And hopefully not just coming and checking in and checking out without ever talking to someone. We want to build relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ because that horizontal relationship is important too. If I was adopting someone into our family, and I know there's a lot of families here that have adopted someone, you know, and someone said, I'd love to be, um, you know, adopted into your family. I'd like to have this. Uh, but I, I don't want to be brothers and sisters with Zoe and Joel. Uh, you say, well, that's not really going to work because Zoe, Joel, Luke, and Eric, they're, they're part of our family too. And so if you want to have fellowship with us, you're also going to have fellowship with them. And so think of it in the same way. We can't think, well, I want to have fellowship with God. I want to be connected to him, but I don't want to be connected with other believers. No, you come into the family of God with God as a father. That means you've got brothers and sisters in Christ as well too. And we're meant to have fellowship and relationship with each other as well. So he gives us eternal life, gives us fellowship, and Jesus gives us joy. And this joy is in connection with other Christians. Now in some translations it says at the end, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some translations say your joy and uh, it's, there's a textual variant here, and uh, probably what happened is um, there were some manuscripts that, that got changed, but probably the original was actually our joy. And John's saying, I'm writing these things, they're going to have joy too, but he's saying as you come into relationship with God and you are connected with him and you are encouraged, it's going to increase our joy as well. And that's the thing, when we have not only this vertical relationship with God, but we have a horizontal relationship with other people and we care about them, their joy becomes our joy. And that's how it's meant to be, that we're not being selfish, that when other people are, are doing well and growing in the Lord and, and genuinely good, that makes us happy as well. And so if you want more joy, proclaim Jesus Christ to others. It is meant to be spread. It is meant to be taken to other people. And the more people that they come to find joy in Jesus Christ, it increases your joy as well. And so you can use your testimony too. We saw some testimonies this morning with the baptism. It's such an encouraging thing. And yeah, our testimonies are not the same type of thing as John the Apostle. We cannot say that we, with our physical eyes, saw Jesus Christ's miracles and risen from the dead. But we can witness of his saving love. 
we can witness of the, the real change he makes in our hearts and our lives. And this is something that God can use in the lives of other people and for his glory. Jesus is real and he gives real life. That's what this first paragraph is all about. Jesus is real, but let me ask, is he real for you? And if he is really real for you, not just a legend, not just you know, tooth fairy or something like that, shouldn't this affect how we live? Shouldn't this affect how you live, that we live in a different way if this is true? Do you live like he's real? Do you trust him like he's real? And the good news I declare to you, Jesus is the real deal. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this testimony from John, uh, sealed to us by the Holy Spirit, that uh, Jesus Christ is real, that he was from the beginning, that he is God made manifest, the God-man, Lord God, and he is a source of life, fellowship, and joy for us. So let us believe this and let us live our lives with the truth that Jesus and this message of Christianity is not just a helpful myth that gets us through the day, but this is real. Lord, thank you. Work in our hearts, and may everything be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.